We're going to go to the book of Job. I've hand-chosen Job chapter 1. Our topic this morning is spiritual ruggedness. Job chapter 1. We'll cover all 22 verses in this narrative um, this morning. And what I want to do is I'll just read as I go. So I just want to read to give you a little bit of context, the first uh, five verses here, and then we'll stop, and then we'll read the next section and keep working as we work through uh, the text um, this morning. So take a copy of God's Word and look at Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, under the topic, Spiritual Ruggedness, reading out of the ESV. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright. How did he get there? Because he feared God and he turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters, ten total. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and it required very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east, east of Palestine. His sons used to go out and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. Let's presume that's a birthday. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send, go there, and he'd consecrate them. He would even rise up early in the morning and offer a burnt offering according to the number of them all. For Job said this, it may be, it's possible that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did this continually or regularly. I've chosen the rough terrain of the book of Job for five reasons. First, Job, as you'll see in a moment, is the model of our topic, spiritual ruggedness or endurance. Job was tough as nails, but at the same time, he gives us hope, right? Second, the New Testament mentions Job once. In James chapter five, verse 11, And James writes, half-brother of Jesus, have you considered the endurance of Job? Have you thought about, deeply thought about, the endurance of Job, his spiritual ruggedness? So the New Testament commends us and encourages us to look at a text like this this morning. Number three, Job provides an explanation to the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Or why do bad things happen to to righteous, upright people as stated in verse one here? Why does that happen? Fourth, Job 1, roughly 4,000 years ago, was the first scripture penned. I know it's not in chronology of your Bible, but by date, it was the first chapter that was ever written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this is the oldest chapter ever written before you this morning. It's riveting, I think, and I think it's relatable, and I hope I present that in such a way. And fifth, 
and most important. This is a quote from William Cowper. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Behind a frowning providence, he, God, hides a smiling face. I do not want you to waste your adversity. I do not want you to waste your trials. James 1.2 says that we can, as believers in God, count it all joy when we go through various trials. Life is frail, right? Keep in mind the context. No Bible's been written. This is the first chapter. No small groups. No Levitical system yet, yet he is offering a burnt offering, predates it. Life is frail and life is fast. Also, you have to recognize that we all walk with a limp. A.W. Tozier said, all Christians are in essence wounded souls. We have to get to the place, people, where we can say, like Psalm 119, verse 71, it was good that I was afflicted. And the first time those words come out of your mouth, it's challenging. It's challenging even to say, it's challenging even for me to stand up here and say, it is good. Can you say that? It is good that I was inflicted. That's Psalm 119, verse 71. We, we suffer for a variety of reasons, right? Let me just list a few. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes because of our sin. And that's why we have Hebrews chapter 12, right? The chastening of the Lord. Sometimes we suffer so that we can indeed minister to others. 1 Corinthians 2, or 2 Corinthians 2, 1, states that we go through certain things in life so that we indeed can comfort others with the same affliction we've been comforted with. Sometimes... It's because of the need for humility, pronounced humility, which you see in the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that, that God gave him a thorn in the flesh to, to, to humble him. We need to be knocked off our stoop. And then also, the case before us this morning, sometimes it's for doing all the right things. Meaning, you're on your A game. You're crushing life. You're crushing your work. You're crushing your marriage. You're crushing it. You're just killing it. And adversity comes your way. That's the case before us this morning. That is the proposition that's before us this morning. That's what I want to unpack for you. Why do bad things happen to great people like yourselves? Why does that happen? Such is the case with Job chapter 1. Folks, we're living in soft times. And soft times have a tendency to produce weak men. And I believe we, I believe I, need to hear from Job this morning. The rough terrain of the gospel of Job entitled spiritual ruggedness. And we know from experience God whispers to us in the good times, but he shouts to us in the bad times. And the school of adversity is the best education you're ever going to get. Well, this morning, this text that's before you in your lap is screaming at us. It's calling out so that we understand what spiritual endurance looks like. We understand what spiritual ruggedness looks like. I've read the text, the first 
five verses. You ready to get busy? Let's get after it together. There are three marks of spiritual ruggedness that I'll present to you this morning. First, I want to call your attention to is in the first five verses, and that is this. You have to hold fast to your integrity. You have to hold fast to your integrity. There is some question as you approach the book of Job, is Job real? He almost seems superhuman. Is he a real man? Verse 1 puts that argument to the rest. To rest, he is a man. The Bible says there was a man, and he was from the land of us. James also recognizes, to give more confirmation, James 5.11, have you heard of the endurance of Job? So the New Testament, Old Testament correlate nicely. He is an actual man, and he's living in the land of us. Us is adjacent to Midian, where Moses spent 40 years being taught in silence and in quiet under the influence of God himself training him up to lead the people of Israel. Suffice it to say, as you approach chapter one, life was good in us. I mean, he is at the top of his game. He is doing fine. Everything in the text tells us there's no sin there. There's no secret sin. There's no sins of omission. He is just on his A game. He's at the zenith of his career. We'll look at that in a moment. And so what the profile of Job looks like is that he is a godly man. There's kind of three things you need to know about him. He was a godly man, he was a serial entrepreneur, and he was a dutiful father, all found in the first five verses. He had this like incredible resume, incredible reputation. He has not brought these trials on himself. Look at the text again. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. This is Moses writing, I mean, this is Job writing here, blameless, moral integrity. He had a blemish-free character. He was unimpeachable in his service to the Lord. It doesn't mean he was a perfect man. What the text does hint at is that he knew how to deal with his sin. He knew how to confess his sin. As 1 John 1, 9 says, confess your sins and he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin. He kept short sin accounts. He, he kept that in front of him. He, he tried to live a, a blameless life. Not a perfect life. Not a perfect life at all. He's not Superman. He's just a man. Next, the text says he was upright. That means it's the way the Old Testament uh, describes kind of keeping in step with God. He cutting a straight path. He stayed on the straight and narrow, much like Psalm chapter 1 references, right? Psalm 1 states that, you know, you, you keep yourself from the, the stain of, of the ungodly and you don't walk in their path. And there's a whole lineage there in, in, in Psalm 1, verse 1, describing what it means and unpacking what it means to be upright. How do you explain this character? This is pre-scripture, pre-Levitical system, right? So how do you explain this? The text does it for you in chapter one. How did he do it? Two reasons. He feared God and he hated evil. He had a healthy, comprehensive, deep fear of God. He took God seriously. That's all that means. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. He was a wise guy. He, he knew. He had spiritual street smarts. He, he kept his life holy. 
And next in chapter 1, it says he hated evil. He just stayed out of the evil's way. He stayed out of the path of evil. It wasn't the decision of him every morning to say, how close can I get to darkness or how close can I get to the edge of sin? He just kept way back. He just didn't get close. He didn't, he didn't wrangle with, with darkness. This is not only the author's commentary, it is also God's commentary. If you look over at 1.8, look down a little bit at 1.8, you'll see this is God. Have you considered my servant Job, for there's none like him on earth, blameless, upright, man who fears and turns away, man who fears me and turns away from evil. So God then says, quoting God, the same commentary, and there's agreement, but here's the best one. Look at 2.9. This is his wife. Our wives know us better than anyone in the room. Hands down. Check out what she says. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? That's pretty good confirmation that this guy's a serious believer, a serious follower of God, right? Author says it. God says it. Wife says it. Two or more witnesses. It's confirmed. He is a man of godly reputation. But not only was he a godly man, he was a serial entrepreneur. Look next in the text. What you have is a reference to his family, <clears throat> seven sons, three daughters, and then there's these numbers. In the ancient world, the way you would describe wealth and what you were into was by the numbers. This is how they categorized you. And so it states here that he had 7,000 sheep. Why would you have 7,000 sheep? Why? Because he was into clothing, right? He had the finest wool tunics and materials to build a clothing line. He was the Gucci of the ancient world, right? This is what he did. He had 7,000 sheep. Next, it said he had 3,000 camels. What would you do with 3,000 camels? Well, that'd be a healthy transportation business, right? He's a serial entrepreneur. He understood supply chain. He had to get supply chain down with clothing, and now he moved it right into uh, transportation. You want to you be vertically integrated, as we do in business, right? We're vertically integrated. He wanted all the pieces of the buffalo. He wanted every part of it, and so he had this massive transportation business. 500 yoke of oxen. You're like, what are you doing with oxen? Like, well, you got to feed all these people. You've got all these servants mentioned in the text, all these mouths, all these companies, and it's agrarian culture, so you got to feed them. So you got to plow the fields, you got to plant, you gotta, you got to grow your own food. you got to be the new buzzword, sustainable, ESG. This is ESG in the Old Testament. You've you got to be more sustainable. So he had 500 yoke of doxen, oxen, doxen, little baby dogs, just kidding. <laughs> Last, this is a kicker, this is pretty cool. 500 female donkeys. You're like, I, we knew he'd get him. What's he going to do with 500 female donkeys? Well, I'm glad you asked. Before there was Schultz and Starbucks, there was warm latte donkey milk. That was their drink of choice in the ancient world. It was their coffee without the caffeine. But they loved warm donkey milk. And so he was the first Starbucks. See the serial entrepreneur coming out? This is way before Schultz ever got popular. This is way back, 4,000 years. They were still doing warm lattes and pour-overs first thing in the morning. So he's feeding about 11,000, if you look at it, roughly 11,000 miles a day, the cattle, all this, all in. So it's a, it's a pretty hefty business. So he had a garage full of chariots, um, he had the finest wool suits. 
I mean, he had a refrigerator, which he did, stocked with the finest cuts. He was a man of renown, and the text then goes on and says it, does it not? He's the most pronounced titan, ancient titan and serial entrepreneur in all of the East. All right, so he's a godly man. He's a serial entrepreneur. Third, most important, he's a family man. He's a family man. Seven sons, three daughters. It was an idyllic home, and on their birthdays, they would gather together. So this is a family reunion. All family reunions are prone towards vice because we all have an Uncle Buck, right? We all have the one that we have on the way home from the family reunion. We have to explain to our children why Uncle Buck's like he is, right? He's a little, little crazy, um, we just kind of got to walk him through, you know, all those issues that come up in a family reunion. So they have the same thing. Kids get together. It's multi-day. It's revelry. They're drinking wine. There's things happening. It's, it's go time in their home. Well, he's a dutiful father. And he is fearful that in all the reveling that they're going to sin against God. They're going to curse God. They're going to say something wrong. And so he would get up the next morning and he would go expiate before the Levitical system he would go expiate for them sin, their sins and offer up a burnt offering just in hopes of covering. So it would be very similar to you if your kids are going out and they're teenagers and they're going out for the first time and they're taking your car. You know, you're, you're probably at home praying with your wife or when they get home, you're praying over them, right? We go into the sneak in while they're asleep like, Lord, please don't let him be an idiot. Uh, please don't let him look at his phone when he's driving. Please, you know, like we, we do that today. It's the same thing just 4,000 years ago um, in their context, right? And so this is what was going on. He was caring for them. He was covering them. He, he in essence, was operating like a family priest before the priesthood was instituted uh, into the Old Testament. It's the mark of a godly home. I have to believe, I have to believe, like, like Joshua you know, he, he would have stated for me and my house, uh, we, we serve the Lord. I have to believe that, right? And so he, he's not just trying to <clears throat> leave his kids with a financial legacy. He's trying to leave them with a spiritual legacy. He doesn't want them to do anything out of the ordinary or sinful before a holy God before they embraced who God is. And then the curtain closes to this first scene. But what we know is that he was a godly man, he was a serial entrepreneur, and he was a dutiful dad, he was a family man. I appreciate that, like, that's the package, right? If there's three things that could be said of you, I mean, that's a pretty good commentary, right? I mean, it's, you don't get any whiff that there's sin in his heart and judgment's about to fall, right? You don't get a whiff of that. There's not an odor at all coming off this man's life he has a, a blemish-free, unimpeachable kind of character. Then we're introduced to characteristic number two, ingredient number two in spiritual ruggedness. Not only do you have to hold fast to your integrity, second, you have to hold fast to your theology. Read with me. Let's go six to 12. Now there was a day. Notice the beginning. There was a man. Now the text transitions. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came in among them. Oh, that's a strange sight. The filthy fallen devil in the presence of God. Interesting. Satan also came in among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, 
from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him on earth, blameless, upright, fears God, turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? He's impugning God's character. The reason he fears God is because you're blessing his socks off. He's at the top of his game. He's at the zenith of his career, right? You've blessed the work of his hands, his possessions. You've increased his land. But if you stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, deal. Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. Against him physically. That's chapter 2. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. This is incredible. You have to hold fast to your theology. So there was a man. Now there's a day. The scene changes and we move from earth to the heavenlies. Crazy. So this is the veil pulled back. Your angel, angelic hosts are moving in and out, doing God's bidding. And accompanying the angels is Satan himself in the very presence of God, the filthy fallen devil in the presence of God. This is an incredible transition from earth to heaven. You draw back, you get a glimpse into the throne of God. Keep in mind, as we move into this next phase in the text, Job is unsuspecting. He has no, he has no warning. He has no... Um, awareness of this conversation that's happening in heavenlies. He's just living his life at the top of his game. And Satan decides to pay God a visit. Such an odd scene. Satan itself means adversary. And we know from other scriptures that he's a slanderer. He loves to slander godly lives. He loves to slander your life. When you sin, he loves to go before God and say, ah, see, she's crazy as a loon. See, he didn't care about his family. See, He's cheating at work. See, you know what I'm saying? He's always the accuser of the brethren. We know that theologically, a devilology, we know how he operates, right? And as God has a plan for your life, so does Satan. He has a wonderful plan for your life too, as you can see with the life of Job. And he's going before God and bringing accusation. Ray Stedman from yesteryear described the scene like this. You can just see him sauntering about, hands in his pockets, picking his teeth, a disdained look on his face, smoking Marlboro Light menthols. I added that. He didn't say that. But. <laughs> Awaiting an opportunity just to accuse a righteous life, as Proverbs 6 would state. But what's interesting as you move in this text is who initiates the conversation? God does. God says, Satan, where have you been? Why would God ask that? Not for his understanding. Why? Because he's omniscient. He knew exactly where Satan's been. Who's he asking the question for? For us reading it this morning so that we would know what 1 Peter 5 captured, right? That he goes about, about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You're being hunted, folks. You don't even know. There's spiritual warfare going on in this canyon, right? It's happening. It's real. And so God says, hey, Satan, where have you been? He goes, oh, I'm just, you know, all over the place. You're like, oh, that's good to know. That's not for God's knowledge. That's for our knowledge. To understand and appreciate 
And then next, Satan scoffs at God. He said, here's the deal. He's a house of cards. Collapse at any moment. You put a hedge around him. You're crushing, you're helping his business, you're giving him land, you're giving him sun and water for ag like the Central Valley, perfect soil to grow crops. Like, this is new, this is, you're, you're totally taking care of, you got the hedge, which is an interesting biblical concept. We see it in Psalm 139, that he hedges us before and behind, right? So there's a hedge out there, at least, that when God is on your life and you have favor with the Lord, you are under his protection. And listen to me about the devil. Nothing Devil has on a leash. He can do nothing without permission for God, from God. So that includes the good gifts and the hard ones. Everything, theologically, you've got to have your theology right, everything passes through the very hand of God, not just the good stuff. Everything, even the, the trials, even the adversity, even the, the most difficult things. And so there's, there's an accusation that if you remove the hedge, he will collapse he will fall under that. Everything will shatter. Everything will come crumbling down. His confidence in you will wane. He'll quit. He'll throw in the towel. And then verse 12. It's the craziest thing. And the Lord said to Satan, okay. How much confidence did God have in Job, right? Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Those words are tough to hear. They're tough to read. Everything he has physically not, not his physical body, but everything he has materially in this life is exposed to you. You can, you can go at him. What you're going to see, Satan does have some power. He's not all powerful, but he has power. He controls the weather you're about to see. He controls a lot of people. I mean, he's controlling a lot of things. But all that he has, God has so much confidence. I guess I got to stop and pause. Could that be said of you? Have you considered my servant Frank? Have you considered my servant Adam? Could it be said of us that the full torrent of God's allowance of adversity is upon us and we hold fast and we endure and we have spiritual endurance and we have moxie? Well, Satan's premise is that saving faith doesn't last. It's all about the goodies. Of course you're a Christian because you like the good stuff, right? You want to be blessed, God's premise, no. It can't be undermined. It's true saving faith regardless. As a matter of fact, for every one person that can handle success, I'll show you a hundred that can handle adversity. Easy, hands down. Very few people can handle wealth. Very few people can handle success. I'll show you thousands who can handle adversity. And of course, we know 1 Corinthians 10 and further revelation that he'll never give us what we can't handle. So whatever's your coming your way in the adversity category, you can handle. Everything goes, God said, but his health. But his health. Scene closes. We leave heaven, we're back down on earth. Job is still unsuspecting. Job is completely in the dark. The devil now has divine permission, right? And the torrent of bad news is about to happen. And keep in mind in context, this is all in a single day. This isn't over months. This isn't staggered over years of difficulty and years of adversity. This is a single nightmare day. 
Let's read 13 to 19. Now there was a day. So there was a man. There was a day in heaven. Now there's a day back on earth. There was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, hey, yo, the oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans, those are terrorists, the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Whew, it was wild, maddening. But it goes on. While he was yet speaking, messenger number two, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven. Those are called acts of God. That's called lightning, right? That's what the insurance adjusters call it, right? The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, third messenger third woe, there came another and said the Chaldeans formed these like three groups. They, they separated the people. They made a raid of the camels. They took them. They struck them down and the servants by the edge of the sword and I have alone escaped to tell you. Okay, folks, just, just a little pause. These are three messengers with rapidity, right, coming woe after woe after woe in a single day and basically the serial entrepreneur piece has been wiped out. All his businesses have been thrashed either by terrorists, by precision lightning, which Satan does control, obviously. And all these things are happening all at once around. This isn't a single day of, of Job's life. This is, this is shock and awe. This is, this is unbelievable, unbelievable situation. Can you put yourself in his shoes? If one of these things, one of these messengers came to our home, it'd probably be enough to buckle most of us, including myself, right? Let's just be honest. But I'm kind of thinking what Job's thinking at this point. I can rebuild. He's a serial entrepreneur. I've been there. I've been to the top. I'll go back. I mean, I'll come back. I'll come back. It's business. You know, we're doing, you know, we're making basketballs this year. We're, we're CEO of Weight Watchers next year. I don't know why I said that, because I feel fat this morning, and so I sprained my stomach, and that's why it's swollen, so just relax. <laughs> Sheesh, you guys are critical. Um, so you see what I'm saying? Like, he's, he's probably saying this. I still have my family, right? We can be, there's 10 of us. He's got boys, seven boys. Surely there's got to be some of them that got some capacity, right? Some horsepower came through the gene pool. Like, we got, some, we got some leaders here in the family. At least I have my family. Look at messenger number four, verse 18. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Oh, Job, your sons and daughters, they were eating, drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness. You know what a great wind is? So it's... Uh, where they're located is it's foothills, almost like the Central Valley where you have uh, fertile land up against steep mountains. So cold air mixes warm air and you get a tornado. You probably don't get a lot of those here, um, but obviously, but where we lived in Kentucky, you get tornadoes a lot and that's the warm air, cold air, and you get this, this, this situation that happens and it is tornadic in nature. Great wind came across the wilderness and struck down the four corners of the house. That's incredible. And it fell upon the young people, and they are all dead. 
and I alone have escaped to tell you. It kind of, <clears throat> it gets me, you know, as a dad. I don't have a category for this. <clears throat> when your house collapses in a tornado and kills all 10 of your children, zero. Nobody survived. He's a godly man, but he's lost all his business, and now he's lost his, his children. And now he's standing over 10 fresh graves, and he's trying to explain to his wife, I haven't done anything to cause this. I haven't done anything to bring this upon our family. I have not cursed God. As a matter of fact, I've expiated for these boys. I've expiated for my beautiful daughters. I've done everything I possibly could have done. And it leads us to our final ingredient in spiritual ruggedness. Hold fast to your integrity. You gotta hold fast to your theology, the sovereignty of God in trials and that's where we pillow our head. When you're in the difficulty, when you're in a deep, dark canyon, and when you're hurting and you're looking for hope, you pillow your head on the sovereignty of God every night. That nothing comes to our family that doesn't first come through the hand of God. And he knows us. He knows us by name. He knows us, every single one of us. But third, hold fast to your worship. Hold fast to your worship. Look at verse 20. Then Job arose. What do you mean he arose? You know why he arose? Because he was buckled. He was on his face. This one got him. Just like it would get you dads. Like he, did, he just buckled him. Like he, he just went to his knees. He, he staggered, it staggered him that his, the news of these messengers, but now his children? It buckled him. He rose from off the ground. He tore his robe, which would be an Old Testament symbol of utter contrition where you rent, like the veil, you would rent uh, your, your tunic, fine wool tunic. He just cut it right down. He just ripped it with such rage and frustration. He just ugh, rent his thing to show his utter grief that he was experienced upon the news of his children, Right? Next, he shaved his head. The glory of a man is his hair. He shaved his head. Now, how do you get a blade, which would have been sharpened glass in that time? I don't know about you, but I'd have the quivers, you know, like this. I'm just getting this news. I don't have composure. You're in shock. How did he possibly shave his head? I have no earthly idea. In, in this kind of this kind of moment, I want you to feel the moment, but he put a straight blade to his head and, and shaved his head in like uh, contrition. And at this point, I've got to think what Satan's thinking. He's thinking, I told you so. Told you he was a house of cards. I told you it's not true saving faith. I told you he only trusts you and honors you because you bless him. You put it to him and you take everything away. You take his kids you take his family, you take his businesses, and his character will crumble. It's not true integrity, but true integrity as we know as def defined is what you're like when nobody else is around. So what is his response gonna be in between the text here? And it's if you feel the tension, Satan going, I told you so, and God says, watch. And I want you to see the next word. Job arose. He tore his robe, 
He shaved his head. He fell on the ground and what? Worshiped. That's solid. He worshiped. He didn't kick. He didn't fight back. He didn't resist the will of God. He worshiped. He said, naked I came into this world. And very well, naked I shall return. The Lord gave me. He blessed me. He did indeed. But the Lord has also chosen to take it all away. And later in Job chapter 5, verse 17, it's going to say, money or wealth has wings and it flies away. You can be very wealthy in 2020 and lose everything in 2021, as a lot of people did. You can be very wealthy today and it be gone tomorrow. There is no guarantee. We don't put our trust in horses and we don't put our trust in finances. We put our trust in the Lord. And to me, that word singular, singularly is stunning that he worshiped, maintained his worship. He held fast to his worship. <clears throat> it's incredible. Multitudes, and I mean multitudes of people have turned their back on the Lord. As seen in the parable of the soils in, in Matthew 13, multiple. Peter said, but don't be surprised when you experience some fiery ordeal. Ease, folks, is for heaven. It's not for now. You're living in a Genesis 3 world. She's broken. She's messed up. And there comes adversity, and there comes pain, and there comes disappointment. But he held fast his worship. C.S. Lewis said it like this. Why do the righteous suffer? He asked the question, why do the righteous suffer? He answers, why not? They're the only ones that can handle it. Because of his theology and his integrity. And you see, when your theology's right and your integrity's right, when met with the hardest, darkest thing in this life, he goes back to his knees, hands up, and worships. He held fast to his integrity, his theology, and his worship. And he's doing that, folks, over 10 fresh graves. This is an avalanche of woes. This is a torrent of woes, like a, like a flood just pounding away on the banks of his soul. And he worshiped. He didn't even understand. He didn't understand what was happening. He, he, he's probably thinking, man, I am crushing it. I'm crushing it as a dad. I'm crushing it in business. I'm crushing it with you, Lord. I mean, I feel like I'm walking. I'm listening to your voice. I'm hearing your voice. I'm getting clarity. But here's the deal. It's unconditional worship. It's not conditional because everything's going sweet in your life. And you got a new Bronco. Woo! Except for the pastel colors. Just want to bring that up. It's important. But he simply trusted God's confidence. And as Spurgeon said, he pillowed his head on the sovereignty of God. The only one cursing in the text, the only one sinning in the text is who? Satan. He cannot believe that this guy's worshiping. And look what it says in verse 22. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God, did not charge God with wrong. He knew everything was on loan. He knew everything was coming through the hand of God. He praised God no matter what. 
And this is why James writes at the end of James 5, verse 11. Have you ever considered the endurance of Job? Well, folks, we're doing that this morning. And I'm doing it because I want you to have hope, right? If Job could go through this of chapter one, you can go through what you're going through. And you have the power of Christ and you have the Holy Spirit residing in you. He did not at the time. You, had, you have the copy of the scriptures in your lap. You have a copy of scriptures on your phone. You have it in your car. You've got, it's taped up in three by five cards all over your bathroom. It's kind of weird, but you, I mean, you've got the whole thing going, right? You, you've got the whole thing. You've got small groups. You've got Adam. You've got this church. You've got your elders. He didn't have any of it, yet he maintained he held up, he hupomone, he endured up under, right? In an unsuspecting single nightmare day. And he didn't charge God with doing anything wrong. And to be honest with you, sometimes you're gonna go through difficult, difficult times and you're never gonna get an explanation. That's the hardest thing for me. I can endure under the hard times. Sometimes I don't know why. And that's frustrating it feels injustice, right? It feels wrong. Like, tell me why. Tell me I can understand. Well, I commit to you, Job chapter one, with the phrase, have you considered the endurance of Job? The answer is yes, you have now. And I hope that it brings you spiritual endurance, spiritual, to use more, maybe a more modern word, ruggedness to your soul. You're built for this. You can do this. And here's what's even better. Job's cool. I commend him to you. 4,000 years ago, he was killing it. But Jesus is a better Job. Doesn't pale in comparison to Jesus. The sinless sacrifice for our sins. Wow. That he endured the cross, Hebrews chapter 12 says, for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. The divine exchange there did nothing wrong, was completely sinless. Job was still a sinful man. He was not a perfect man. Jesus is a better Job, far better. And that's who I would point you to in your crisis, in your adversity, in your trials. Run, run as fast and as hard as you can into the loving arms of Jesus, who died for the unjust, who shed his blood so that we could be reconciled to God. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is a better Job. So it's a bonus. You get Job, hopefully with a little bit of color unpacked for you. Don't know if you've considered it. You get James's commentary on it. It's all about endurance. You got James also saying, hey, count it all joy because going through trials will produce what? Endurance. So going through it, you don't get endurance from soft times. You get it from hard times. But most important, you get Jesus. And if you don't know Christ, here at Placerator, we'd, we'd beg you to give your life to Christ. That's the first step in knowing God. You've got to come through the blood of Christ. You've got to commit your life to Jesus Christ. You're going to trust in yourself? You're going to trust in your wealth? Or you're going to trust in Jesus? We would, as on behalf of the elders, we would we'd want you to give your life to Jesus Christ. Again, have you considered the endurance of Job? 
Let's pray together. Father, this is, um, this is a tough text. Strong, clear, an archetype for us to go through the difficult times that we go through and find ourselves in. Individualized for us, but coming through your perfect hand. Lord, we say thank you for the good gifts and the hard ones. Thank you that Job was a godly man and yet he suffered, didn't even understand it, but he suffered and he, he passed the test and he honored you and he fell down and consistently worshiped you. May that be true of us. May we respond to this life and to challenges in worship. And we ask this in the name of King Jesus. Amen.